0: Hello, everyone. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephen Treziak, co author of Wonder Drug Seven Scientifically Proven Ways That Serving Others is the Best Medicine for Yourself. And this was released just last month. That is June of 2022. It is co authored by his friend and colleague, Dr. Anthony Mazzarelli, co president and CEO of Cooper University Healthcare. Wonder drug is a follow-up to 2019's Compassionomics, the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference. And in this, Dr. Treziac and Mazzarelli uncover the eye-opening data that compassion could be the wonder drug for the 21st century. Drs. Treziak and Mazzarelli's new release, Wonder Drug, expounds on these same concepts and shows how everyday people like you and me can benefit greatly by adding a little compassion to our days. This is not another spin on prayer, meditation, and visualization. It's not that at all. This book will create a new awareness in you. It will prove things to you. Every point in this book is backed by studies. It will irrefutably convince you of how making some subtle or big, if needed, changes to your behavior will have a massive impact on your relationships, happiness, and career. Much needed in today's world of anxiety, greed, and depression. Hey, everybody. I am here with Dr. Stephen Treziak, physician scientist and co-author of Compassionomics and Wonder Drug. And to properly introduce you, Dr. Treziak, I'll quote your friend, colleague, and co-author, Dr. Anthony Mazzarelli, likes to be called Maz., he says, in quotes, he's an intensivist, intensive care specialist, was the head of critical care at Cooper University Healthcare. His reputation as the science guy is well earned. He was the National Institute of Health, NIH, number one research grant recipient, the most published faculty member, our star research researcher, and our very own super nerd. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tresiak. Thank really, you so much. Great to have you here. I, I listened to your book, wonder drug science, which is came out last month here, uh, June of 2022 wonder Drug seven scientifically proven ways that serving others is the best medicine for yourself. And I think it's very, very interesting to me because it's, um, It's a self-help book in a whole different style. It's not like The Secret. It's not like anything else where you meditate. It's, you know, tell you to meditate, tell you to visualize this, that, or the other. No, this is all based on science research. You quote so many studies throughout this book. It's unbelievable. I think it's about creating an awareness, irrefutably. If you're Getting a little bit uh, skeptical of things like The Secret. Hey, that didn't work for me. It's been 20 years I've been visualizing that stuff. It hasn't worked out. I think this is your
1: alternative.
0: How would you describe
1: the book Wonder Drug? Really, it is a journey through the scientific evidence. And the journey actually started um, almost five years back now. And it culminated in an earlier work that was aimed mostly at the healthcare community. And that, that project culminated in the book called Compassionomics. This book wonder drug is really aimed at everybody everywhere. And so the way we started this journey through the scientific evidence um, for me, for me, it's where the science meets the personal, Uh, as you mentioned, I'm, an intensivist so a specialist in intensive care medicine essentially i meet patients and their families on what is often the worst day of their life yeah. and after doing that for almost at that time 15 plus years i became very aware that i had every symptom of burnout myself right. and burnout is is now a, it, it it there is a diagnosis um, it, it's actually in the diagnostic criterion in, in the uh, in the manuals, uh, for treating mental health disorders. And I think burnout is really the perfect term because it, when I, when I think of burnout, I think of what's left of a building after, a after it's been gutted by fire. Right. And it's just the charred emptiness. Right. And that's really what it feels like. And that's really what I was feeling like. And what was I supposed to do? Well, I'm a research nerd. I've been doing research now. At that point, it was for more than 15 years in my uh, career as a physician scientist. And so when I was facing that, I actually went to the evidence to try to find answers. It's just my MO. It's just my second nature. So I went to PubMed, which is like Google for medical Mm -hmm. science. And what I was finding there is... They were things that I call us, I, I put in the category of escapism, mm. like get away more, take more vacations, go on nature hikes by yourself, Recharge. put on your head. Yeah, put on your headphones and block out the world or do your meditation app or whatever, going deeper withinward. And I just wasn't buying it because I thought that something had to fundamentally change at the point of care, not an escape. Mm. And so that's when. My co-author and colleague, uh, Dr. Maz, Anthony Massarelli, um, who's an emergency physician by background, but he's the co-CEO of the organization, Cooper University Healthcare. We're in Camden, New Jersey. And in, in going through all the scientific evidence, we found that compassion for others can be a powerful beneficial therapy for the giver too. So not just beneficial for the recipient, but for the giver too. And what I was taught in medical school was don't care too much because too much caring, too much compassion. Now this was the early '90s. There really was no bona fide research. It was all based on on opinion and and uh, um, I'd were- say
0: common sense. You it, it seems to make sense that you want don't want to have your emotion get emotionally invested in each and every one of these patients and
1: have that sucked out of you right. So the teaching was sort of like an emotional shield. And I believed that myself for 25 years until I actually went to the, to the source and the scientific evidence. And so my med school training was the early nineties, you know, when just a few years ago, when I went to the scientific evidence, I found that where opinion and, uh, um, and where there were gaps, there was now filled with bonafide scientific research to show that there is a relationship between compassion for others and burnout, but it's inverse. It's inverse. Mm, So if what I, if I, if what I was taught in medical school was true, that too much caring, too much compassion burns you out, then you would see high compassion, high burnout, low compassion, low burnout. But what the preponderance of evidence in the scientific literature actually shows is that the relationship is inverse. So high burnout, low compassion, low burnout goes with high compassion. And my hypothesis was, and again, this relates to healthcare, but we're going to make the transition to everybody everywhere Mm -hmm. in just a minute. My hypothesis was that if you care deeply about patients and not just patients and their families, but colleagues, coworkers, staff. um, What what the research really supports is that the key to resilience is relationships. So if you care deeply, then you're going to have the fulfilling relationship that flows from that. And if you don't have the fulfilling relationships, then you don't get the good part of what it means to take care of patients. You don't get the good part the fulfilling part. And all you have is a really stressful job. (laughs) That's And so I, I decided to do what I call my N of one experiment, my N of one. And so the N is the, is the uh, designation and research for number of study subjects. So N of one means one study subject. And the only study subject was me. And I decided that now armed with the data that compassion can be a powerful beneficial therapy for the giver too. I was going to test the compassion hypothesis for myself. So I cared more, not less leaned in rather than pulling back and detaching. And not just with patients, with their families, but with the nurses that I'd worked with for over 15 years at that point, with the staff in the IC, with my colleagues, the other intensivist physicians, um, friends, I mean, even at home and, Um, because the key to resilience is relationships and that's supported by over 280 original science research papers. And that was when the fog of burnout began to lift for me, but it's not where the story ends. It's where the story starts because other healthcare workers read compassionomics and tested the compassion hypothesis for themselves. And they got the same results.
0: And, and might I
1: add, wasn't yeah.
0: this in? Didn't this come out in 2019? Yeah, during the most challenging medical well circumstances. It it
1: was, it, it was about six months before, actually. Thank God, huh? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and so we got messages from healthcare workers all over, far and wide, that said, you know, I I tested the compassion hypothesis for myself, and I got the same results, and and. Wow. Dr. Maz and I got to thinking, there's no way that this is only true for people who put on scrubs every day and go work in a hospital. Right. We're right. humans, we're like, all humans. Yeah, there has to be some sort of common thread. There has to be um, perhaps even a universal, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so that's the hypothesis that we were testing in the new project, which culminated in the book Wonder Drug, which just came out. Mm-hmm. And the hypothesis there is that serving others is the best medicine for yourself. So different from a healthcare context where literally every day there are people suffering. Well, you're not met every day in everyday life with people who are suffering, just people who maybe need that random, quote unquote, act of kindness, right? Mm -hmm. Either because uh, even if they don't need anything in that day, um, just serving other people being other focused rather than self-focused or self-centered and um a, a key research term it's just a research term called prosocial access just a research term that means kindness right mm, mm-hmm. and so this book synthesizes all the scientific evidence and again there are 250 original science research papers curated for uh wonder drug that shows that Serving others is good for your physical health, good for your mental health, good for your happiness, fulfillment, well being, emotional health, and even good for your professional success. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so we synthesize all that evidence for the why, why serving others is good for you. And then it culminates in a seven step evidence evidence based prescription. Um, Again, chuck full of scientific uh, data. Um, because that's our approach. And, and, the, and uh, seven scientifically proven ways to up your game, so to speak, and serving others to reap all the benefits. So really, Dr. Maz and I, we like to look at familiar things in unfamiliar ways. So rather than looking at these topics like kindness or compassion through an emotional sentimental lens or a moral ethical lens, we look at we look at these things through the lens of science and put it under the scrutiny of science. And so what we're sharing with you, isn't what we think or our opinion, like we're not preaching to anybody. We're just telling you what we found in our journey through the evidence.
0: Well, what I find interesting about that is in your first book, compassionomics, that's the only way you could approach the medical industry. They're not going to take a bunch of speculation and, and you're not going to convince them to meditate. Uh, 10 minutes in, uh, at lunch and, and all this other stuff, but they're definitely going to listen to the studies. You yeah. know, I, I think it's a, a brilliant approach. And then the fact that you take that into uh, wonder drug, right. And you bring it to the masses, I think is a really refreshing approach to those of us that also are no longer seeming. We just can't take another book telling us the same thing in a different way. Um, you, bring up the fantastic four in this mm-hmm. book, which I want to get right back to the science of this. We, and I yeah. I love the pop culture references throughout the book. It <laughs> made me laugh out loud several times in particular, the reference to Godzilla and King Kong, but we'll leave that for the book. That was a very <laughs> funny one. Uh, now the fantastic four was an eye opener to me. I've certainly heard of dopamine. I think of, Oh, when I get to that next level and candy crush. I get that. I know I get that little dopamine rush, right? Yeah. Uh, so I never really knew how that was different from serotonin. So serotonin. I, and I've heard of endorphins, like when you exercise the runner's high or whatever, I never heard of oxytocin and you mm-hmm. explain how all of these, you can work all of these exercise, do different things, behaviors that will bring all of these feel good uh, hormones into your life, this is an entirely different approach than I've ever heard before. Mm. And I'll I'll put it this way. One of my favorite authors in my entire life was was Dr. Wayne Dyer. And he would talk about, he would approach this from, and uh, he's a psychologist, was, was sorry. Um, And he would talk about this, raising to a higher vibrational harmony. And that is what will attract things to you. Well, how do you, it was never really explained. How do you
1: really get to that higher vibrational harmony? Anytime there's a science, you have a scientific pursuit, and your hypothesis is that A is associated with B, meaning serving others is associated with health and well being benefits. You have to have your hypothesis rooted in some sort of a mechanism, right? Mm. And so the mechanism is what connects the, behavior in this case to the outcome. And there, there are, so there're actually six different mechanisms and you've hit on some of them. But just real briefly, I think it's important just so your, your listeners and viewers you know understand that, that this is rooted in uh, uh, mechanisms that are you know tangible, if you will. When you bear witness, to suffering of some kind or somebody in need it research using functional MRI brain scans, which shows what parts of the brains are activated at any given moment in time. It actually activates the pain center of your brain. Hmm. And we know this experientially because it's uncomfortable to watch people suffering or people in need. Right. Right. But when you take action to alleviate someone's pain or suffering to, to some extent, it actually activates a reward center of the brain. It activates on functional MRI scans. You can, uh, neuroscience researchers can see that it activates a reward center of the brain, a distinct neural structure, which is associated with positive affect, positive emotion, feelings of affiliation. And that's part of the reason, not all of it, but part of the reason about what, and we know this experientially, that it feels good to help people, right? right. So there's direct activation of neural structures. And then on top of that, we have what we call the fantastic four, which is, uh, endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, these neurotransmitters that are activated and, and upregulated if you will, when, um, when giving and, and serving others, in addition to that serving others also fine tunes, the nervous system, And so there's part of the nervous system that we're probably familiar with the terms fight or flight, uh, right? So that's called the sympathetic nervous system. When we serve others, the opposite side of the nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the calming part of the nervous system Mm -hmm. is activated preferentially over the fight or flight. And that's why oftentimes when we're helping people, we feel it's, it's a calming experience. In addition to that, um, there are, um, there, there's something called chronic systemic inflammation. So inflammation throughout the body that if present and at high levels and over time, over long periods of time, it's associated with really bad things like cardiovascular disease and cancer. And what research shows is that the genes for creating inflammatory Mediators in the bloodstream, they're actually um, reduced or switched off, um, essentially, when we are engaged in what researchers called eudaimonic pursuits as opposed to hedonistic pursuits. So rather than like seeking pleasure in, a, uh, uh, in the moment, when we're focused on what they call eudaimonic activities, like things for a higher purpose, you know, above our own self, you know, serving something bigger than ourselves it actually switches off the genes that produce inflammation. In addition, number five is that while we all know what it feels like to be stressed out, it is also true that chronic stress over time is associated with stress-mediated disease and higher risk of early death. And uh, serving others buffers not only our stress, but our response to stress and specifically buffers the effect of stress on mortality or the flip side, longevity. And so it can actually reduce stress-mediated disease. Of course, if sustained consistently over time. And then lastly, when we see the recipients of our giving and our serving and we see how it affects them and how it's meaningful for them, Neuroscience research also shows that there is a reciprocal uh, effect in our own brains, which makes us want to do it over and over again. So there are rigorous, well defined mechanisms of serving others and so this isn't like magic tricks, you know what I mean. Um, So I want to make it a little heavy with what you just
0: said there. So, it sounds like you're talking about a little bit about replacing some bad habits with some good habits, and it's very sustainable over time. So, here's where it gets heavy. You mentioned too in there, in somewhere in the book, uh, that if you you will develop new neural pathways via learning and trying new things, can this help addiction and OCD? And does this wane? as we get older, like, can you teach a dog new tricks?
1: So first of all, change is possible. I didn't always believe that. Um, Mm. And before I got into the science myself, like I believe that compassion for others, kindness for others was like maybe something in your DNA. Like you were either wired that way or you're not, Mm. like it's in the fabric of who you are. And I believe that until, I actually looked at the scientific data for myself and what it shows quite clearly, not only in the healthcare domain, but just broadly uh, for general populations uh, in rigorous science in the psychology domain is that um, kindness uh, and compassion for others, the behaviors that um, manifest that Mm -hmm. can in fact be taught and learned. And the key, the key is you have to have what's called a growth mindset about it. Now, you might have heard your your viewers, your listeners may have heard a lot about a growth mindset. The uh, preeminent researcher in this space is Dr. Carol Dweck at Stanford. Many people know about that work in the context of kids and coming up through the educational system. But what a lot of people don't know about her work is that she and her colleagues also studied this for empathy and compassion for others. And just real briefly, if you have a growth mindset, that, that, um, that mindset is <clears throat> understanding that whatever it is you're trying to learn or get better at is just a collection of skills. It's not a trait, mm-hmm. as opposed to a fixed mindset, where you believe that whatever you're trying to learn or get better at, is, it, it, it's a trait. Like, either you have it or you don't. Right. Those people don't, on average over time, do not persevere. They don't persist. They won't work at it. And that's why kids going coming up through school that have a fixed mindset, they think intelligence is, is a trait, not a skill or a collection of skills. On average, they don't do as well as the kids who have a growth mindset, who just think it intelligence is a collection of skills. So I just need to try harder if I experience rough patches. Well, what what she found, what Dr. Dweck and colleagues found is that this is also true for compassion for others. And when people realize or are aware of the science that we can actually grow in our behaviors and how we behave towards other people, that uh, we, we we can actually get better at compassion for others. But the key is having a growth mindset, and, and those that have a growth mindset about kindness for others and compassion for others will be they will be the people who can be kind to others or show compassion for others when it is hard to do it. And let's face it, in life, sometimes it's hard, right? Yeah. So so um, yes, change is possible. Um, you asked me about OCD and addiction. Mm. Uh, I don't, I'm not aware of any data related to OCD. Um, mm. uh, there is data on social anxiety that is obviously different than OCD, but that social anxiety can be relieved when one's mind is focused on uh, giving and serving others and kindness to others. And we cover that in wonder drug. <clears throat> there, there are some data related to addiction. The caveat I want to say out front is I'm not an expert in addiction medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do cover some research in the book that relates specifically to addiction. I'll, but we just lay out the research and let the readers make up you know, their own mind. Uh, I say that because uh, addiction medicine is one of the most complex areas of healthcare, and there are a lot of experts out there, and and that's not my background. So, that wow. being said, I, I will say that, as I understand it, the twelfth step in twelfth in twelve step programs, mm-hmm. the first eleven steps, if if you don't complete or if you just stop at eleven, you're likely to fall back into old patterns. The first eleven. Maybe somewhat self focused, but the 12th one, as I understand it, again, not an expert in these matters, is focused on helping another person who is in the same struggle that you have been. And once you do that, whether it's related to the accountability that's associated with that or just the act of serving that person that changes something uh, within you. Uh, Again, I don't know, it's not my area. uh, I'm an intensivist, but. as I understand it, that twelfth step of looking outward rather than looking inward is vital to recovery. Yeah,
0: I was and, just oh, go ahead.
1: And other people that are in the recovery community and scientists that that study this have told me that uh, the same thing.
0: Yeah, and that's I was going to back that up with. Yesterday, I was talking to a another author, Ray Vance who I'm going to have on next week. He had, he's been recovering for 30 years, been fully, I, you never fully recovered, but be, he's been completely sober for the last 10 and now he is dealing with his son's same struggle. This is going to be a heavy podcast, but he talked heavily about what you said about the 12th step and uh, that he did not, successfully achieve sobriety until he got to that and, and start practicing that 12-step service and giving back. And he, and he said, about it's, it, what you said about the accountability, about someone else relying on your sobriety, mm-hmm. uh, your example, and a lot of uh, your studies throughout the book also said about you can achieve a lot of the same effects by observing the examples other, other people are providing and feeling uh, the empathy uh, with that as well. I want to switch gears a little bit. And uh, just, I know that your time is precious and and this is another heavy area. And it's a little different, but I want to talk about today's problems. You mentioned in the book, 64% of Gen Z has symptoms of an anxiety and depression and serious thoughts of suicide. Social media, obsession with self-centeredness, it keeps us in our own heads. And you also mentioned loneliness. There's there's, there's an increasing loneliness due to these things and increasing isolation. Uh, living alone produces 32% increase in mortality rate. And, and it says it doesn't even matter if you don't feel lonely. This, this is still the truth. Uh, the science bears out. Your book, I think, is coming at an important time in society when technology and, and even our own society, we worship athletes and reality stars and things like that. The science is bearing out that we need to kind of put these things down a little bit and connect a little bit more. Wouldn't you say? It's
1: kind of obvious? The, um, in the UK, they have... Uh, so the, the public health data supporting the concept that loneliness kills is so striking um that not only did our current surgeon general write a book about it but in the uk government they actually have a a position in in the government called the minister of loneliness (laughs) which sounds like the saddest job ever but but it underscores the fact that the associations are real and these associations have been examined. Um, you know, there, there've been some doubters uh, about the associations I've, ex- I've looked at the data myself in my um, in my synthesis of the evidence is that the associations are so strong that um, that that signal is so strong uh, that, that, that I believe the association is real. And when you are chronically lonely you have essentially, um, chronic activation of your fight or flight Mm. sympathetic nervous system and, and high levels of cortisol release, which is like the stress hormone. So when sustained over time, um, it, it is, um, it it can be really bad for you theoretically, but then we see the data, the associations that there's a high, uh, heightened mortality risk. So One of the foremost researchers in this area has published data that uh, suggests that the risk of chronic loneliness for early mortality is as strong of a risk as smoking, uh, as obesity, as alcohol abuse, um, which we all know are public health problems. And so I think in the medical community, we're starting to treat it accordingly. So yeah, um, it, it feels that... We're becoming more and more disconnected in so many different ways yeah. and you know we could talk about that for a long time but i think that it has real effects on our health and that for good health human connection matters i mean so for example just real quick <clears throat> many of your viewers and listeners may be familiar with with a famous study called the harvard grant Study. So it has been going on for more than 80 years they're on their fourth study director and what they did is is uh a long time ago they enrolled teenagers in boston and one of the cohorts was were harvard students and and one of them were teenagers not enrolled in college and they followed them over time and what they wanted to figure out was was what is the the key to unlock you know good health and longevity into your 80s and what they found in my opinion is really striking and i and i think about this regularly but the key to the key to good health and longevity in their into their 80s wasn't some biomarker in their 50s. So it wasn't their blood pressure, it wasn't their blood sugar level, it wasn't their cholesterol level, it wasn't any of these things. It was the quality of their relationships. Mm-hmm. And um, really what the data, um, and that that's a poignant, um, you know, uh, study, but what the data supports is that for good health, human connection matters. Right.
0: Right. And you know, that, uh, stat that I shared that from your book, 64% of Gen Z has symptoms of anxiety, depression, serious thoughts of suicide. Well,
1: the most striking honestly (laughs) was from the pandemic. And this was just, this was, um, measured in, I believe it was August of 2020. And, what the, what the researchers found, and the, the, this is, you know, the most, um, uh, rigorous way we have of measuring these things and, and reported in a very highly respected journal, uh, for public health. And what they found is that one in four, 18 to 25 year olds had serious thoughts at suicide. That's unbelievable.
0: I mean, I'm aware of the stats though I've been hearing and following that, but it's, it's not acceptable. That's for sure. And, you know, with the nature of social media, does it get worse or does it, you know, can we get it better?
1: I don't know. Let me, let me just speak to that for just a minute. It sort of goes back to something you were saying early on about meditation and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me just say, first of all, I think meditation is great. Uh, if you like meditation, do it. Um, I'm just sharing with you data, right? Mm -hmm. So this is not like opinion or anything like that, but there was a survey study that was, um, conducted through the NIH and they studied self-care practices over time and changes in self-care practices over time. And what they found is that over time, self-care practices have become more and more isolating, isolating. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, take that walk in nature by yourself, put on your headphones and, or your yeah. earbuds and block out the world, do your meditation app on your phone to go deeper withinward. But these are mostly journeys deeper into yourself by yourself. Whereas what the research supports is that in decades past, especially when we, were, um, when we were experiencing times of hardship and struggle, we found solace in family and in friends and in relationships. Right. And what I can tell you after now five years, essentially, of curating and synthesizing the scientific evidence, if there is one you know, statement I could make after synthesizing all of this science and, and, and writing two books about it, it's this: the key to resilience is relationships. And so that I share this, I, I not I don't charge them, but I have a lot. I'm the chair of the Department of Medicine now uh, at Cooper. I have, you know, like almost 150 trainees uh, that are in the various programs that are in my department that I'm ultimately responsible for. And in our Internal Medicine Residency Program, we have more than 80 resident physicians being a resident physician is really hard. I mean, that's, it's by design. It has to be rigorous because, you know, at the end, you have to know what you're doing and what I tell them my advice. And, and I do this, I I give the first talk of the academic year uh, every year. And what I tell them um, not because it's my opinion or what I think or believe, but, but what we found in going through all the scientific evidence What I share, what I tell them is to take good care of each other, take good care of each other and not, not just because it's good for the other person, but it's good for you too. Because when you are taking care of, and I tell them like, you don't have to be best friends and, and like go out to dinner after work every night, you know, I'm, but you can check in with each other and, and take care of people. Meaning like, Hey, you know, I heard your mom was sick. You know, I I hope she's Mm -hmm. doing okay. If you need anything, I'm, you know, you just call me up and I'm there. Right. right. And once you start doing that, it, it transforms the experience and the culture, if you will, uh, for the, for the recipient, but also for the giver. Because once you do that, you experience your surroundings differently. I mean, the, these, these resident physicians are here like 80 hours a week, right? Yeah. And so, and so um, when you start taking care of each other, you start feeling differently about the work that you're doing. And then it's not just a job. So, so I, I think it's evidence-based um, it, it It's an evidence-based recommendation
0: For sure it is, and I you quoted numerous studies throughout the book that prove that the giver actually received more benefit than the recipient of compassion.
1: Well not I, I don't know about more, uh, but okay. receives a receives a benefit, and you know we provide all the evidence for physical health benefits, mental health benefits, happiness, fulfillment, well-being, and even professional success. And then what we do is we share with you the evidence of how you can raise your game in helping and serving other people, which is key because you don't want to just know the why, you want to know the how, because if you believe the why, then you need some help getting there.
0: Right, right. Let me ask you how this applies to our careers. A lot of this podcast over 50 starting over, it's about helping us get a little bit better every day in our lives and our careers. And I believe that after 50, we are at the pinnacle of our careers. We're the experts now. We we hold the cards of what our career should be. You should be doing what you want to do most now. So don't, it, some of us are feel stuck in a grind in corporate America. Some are, have gotten squeezed out. So take that and do with it what you will. But I do want to Just bring out a couple of statistics that you shared is that we are overworking ourselves dramatically, and living out the law diminishing returns 33% of employees seriously overwork 83% will show up even when sick because they feel like they have got to make that presence. Um, robust research shows that resistance to burnout is developed through kind, caring, intimate, and loving relationships. Uh, conversely, to that, you you mentioned uh, this is off the top of my head, but when somebody would come into work and with a negative attitude it, in the morning, it would instantly permeate throughout the workplace and make uh, set the stage for a miserable work day. So conversely, if you come in and ask somebody sincerely how they're doing, oh, don't ask them the the yes or no question. Ask them, can I help you with something? I remember that you said that specifically. Because it can't be answered with a yes or no. And it shows that you really are empathizing and caring. That's a great way to start building relationships during a workday that can help foster a much better, healthier workplace environment. I think we're starting to become more and more aware of that today. You know, like Glassdoor, you're aware of the I guess you would call it an app Glassdoor where companies are rated when you're looking for a new job, go to Glassdoor, see how uh, um, employees are rating these companies amongst a lot of different metrics, the culture, the CEO, the, uh, the benefits and all the different things. This has become so ingrained into our workplace environment that people have no choice but to become aware that the culture of a company is very important to people when they're looking for jobs. I I just bring that up because I think it's a very hopeful thing that is synergistic with uh, your teachings. I don't want to say teachings, but your studies,
1: the outcomes. Yeah, we've, we've curated a lot of evidence that the culture of a workplace, and by culture, I don't mean like um, a sign that, ha- that hangs on the wall, like here are our core values, right? Right, right? I mean, like how people actually behave towards each other in real life. Like, is it a helpful, supportive environment or is it a cutthroat uh, environment as evidenced by um, the behaviors towards each other? And researchers have studied this using well-validated tools to measure culture. And what they found is that a culture of compassion, and, and we're not talking about necessarily the boss to the employee, but we're talking about everybody and how they behave towards each other, like at all levels of the organization. And where there is a culture of compassion, there is not only there are not only better outcomes for the organization in terms of quality, but also there is less emotional exhaustion amongst the employees, but here's the kicker. There's also less absenteeism. Yeah. So people actually miss work less. Now, maybe that's intuitive to some extent. If you're in a toxic workplace, of course people want to call out from work, Mm -hmm. but there are, there are research to put data to what, you know, what may be intuitive in that respect. And, and, While we don't necessarily need data to tell us that one toxic person can ruin a whole uh, office, for example, right? Because we've all experienced that at some point in our life. We all have. Experientially, right? But research also supports that the opposite is true. So, and this is one of the seven uh, steps of the prescription that that we prescribe for people in Wonder Drug. It's called Elevation. Elevation. So, elevation is a uh, an emotional state. It's emotional uplift when you bear witness to someone else's moral excellence, heroism, going above and beyond for other people, doing the right thing. And, you know, we've all felt that as well. When you, when you see somebody do something really cool for somebody else, yeah. that maybe it was just out of left field, you can kind of feel it in your chest, right? Well, what yeah. research supports is not only do we feel that as a, as a, as a bona fide emotional state, yeah. but it is associated with helping, giving, and serving behaviors. So when we are bearing witness to the excellence of other people, we want to be better ourselves. And so there are data to support that, that we try to be better. And so in, in, in the sense that you didn't probably need any data that one toxic person, it just, it's like contagious, right? Right. It's also true for goodness. And when we bear witness to goodness, it makes us want to be better ourselves. And so the lesson for, you know, our kids is be very careful who you associate with. And, you know, moms and dads have been telling kids that for, all time because it's intuitive, but there are also data to support. Be, be very careful who you associate with because if you associate with people who are going to routinely give you elevation rather than degrade you, right. um, you're going to want to be better. Uh, and similarly, you know, seek organizations where uh, you're going to be surrounded by people who elevate you because not only will you get that elevation, that emotional uplift, you'll actually want to follow suit. And that's not what I think or believe. That's what the science shows.
0: For sure. Uh, I just I have always noticed that throughout my life, being preached at will push people away every time. But if through example, if somebody, I have a friend, my college roommate, who is my frequent co host, is uh, a, a born again Christian, And when I met him in college, I was always ah, trying to give him those blue collar pot shots that we do. And he always remained unaffected. I didn't get the negative reaction. I was looking for I'm like, what's, what's that about? What's he got that I don't have? That's my point is you learn through example. If somebody instead of preaching at you and telling you how you should be, they just are that. That's, Mm -hmm. that spreads, that's contagious. And I have always looked at him and admired him and tried to get more of that for myself not from nothing he ever said to me you <laughs> know uh
1: I, I, if you had something to say to that i'm sorry i didn't mean i to would, i was just going to add that there are data for that as well that sure. when kids are preached a certain kind of behavior uh, that is moral ethical you know the right thing to do <laughs> yeah. and it's inconsistent with behaviors they just shut it out and actually when it is aligned with behavior or just the behavior without the preaching part that's when they follow suit and so it it just um i i hesitate to use the word contagious with behavior because now in our pandemic hardened thinking the word contagious just you know kind of uh Uh, we don't like it. I I react negatively to it too, but, um, what the research supports is that helping serving compassion, kindness, empathy does spread through social networks. Mm. And that's probably not surprising to a lot of people. The surprising part is the fact that it's been measured and studied and that there's, there's rich data behind it.
0: Mm. Nice. Hey, let's uh, take this to a higher level. I want to talk about the happiest man in the world, and uh, that's yeah. the French scientist and Buddh- Buddhist monk. Forgive me here, Matthieu Ricard. How'd I do?
1: Yeah, you, you did great. And so he was. He's been studied uh, at the um, uh, in Dr. Richie Davidson's laboratory at the University of Wisconsin, the Center for Healthy Minds, um, and what. The researchers found is that when studying his brain through a various through various modalities neuroscience research, they found that his brain lit up, so to speak, in ways that were not only off the charts, uh, but you know, standard deviations away from normal and unlike anything that they had ever seen before. Yeah. And specifically, it was activated in such a way that is a reflection of the experience of human happiness. And so, when he was asked, "What is it that you're doing when you're generating these sort of data from your brain?", he was, he was found to be meditating on on compassion and kindness for other people, which he has said is, is the most, is the happiest experience that, that he can imagine. And so the neuroscience data don't lie. I mean, he is clearly experiencing something else in his brain that was not only measured, uh, was not only not measured in anybody else, it had never been seen before in this laboratory, which is one of the Foremost neuroscience. I mean, this is a this laboratory is no joke. Um, uh, these scientists are are at the top of the field, and what the research just supports is that y- you can experience happiness in uh, when you become an expert, so to speak, in serving others. So, in his tradition, um, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, they spend. Ten thousand or more hours meditating on compassion and kindness for other people, and what that research then shows is that you literally can change your brain, because it's unlikely that that's just the brain he was born with, and so he gravitated to being a Buddhist monk. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's much more likely, because all of his other, for for many reasons, that um, the experience that, uh, of all the hours that they're focused on kindness, caring, compassion for others has literally changed their brain as measured by all these neuroscience research modalities. Where I wanted
0: to go with that is, um, and I don't have it in my notes. I'm just going from memory here, but you've mentioned the 10,000 hours of, uh, meditating on compassion. And I know that people, uh, kind of get, a uh, have a little bit of trepidation when you say meditation. Oh, I know I should be doing it. And I haven't been in, in mm-hmm. all of that. And well, you in that section of the book, you got down to well, you know, oh, I know what it was, the benefits that you get out of just 100 hours a week of total volunteering, time or compassionate Mm -hmm. act time and then you broke that down with the uh sophisticated use of a calculator (laughs) and you came down to 16 minutes a day of compassionate yeah
1: so we don't want anybody to think just because this was a dramatic example from neuroscience research about about uh uh, 10,000 hours right so what what the first question should be is you know what's the dose what is the dose of helping or serving others that is associated with the beneficial effects? And so that's why I have the seven-step prescription that we, Dr. Maz and I write for you in Wonder Drug. The first one is start small. So you don't have to quit your job, sell all your worldly possessions, move to a third world country and start hauling water from a distant well. Right. <laughs> um, what really the research supports is that you need a personal paradigm shift. So like simple prism changes. You don't need to change your surroundings, you need to change your experience of your surroundings and how you experience surroundings and just start with the people that are right in your orbit every day, people living under your own roof or people in your workplace or that people you encounter just routinely in life and keeping your eyes open for small opportunities to um, not only have empathy, but then to lend a hand and show them kindness. Uh, Research from the University of Toronto shows that in everyday life, on average, we have nine empathy opportunities per day which I think about this a lot, like how many did I already miss today, you know? And so um, that's why we always want to be on the lookout for them. But as far as the dose is concerned, um, there are many studies that point to 100 hours per year of serving others as a threshold, like a threshold effect above which you can get the benefits. Um, And, the problem with interpreting that data and incorporating it to your life is most people don't take their medicine once a year. Mm. You know, most people that take medicine, take medicine once a day. And so what's the daily dose um, so to speak. Right. And what the daily dose uh, is for compassion is 16 minutes a day. If you just do the math on 100 hours per year, it's 16 minutes per day on average. And that's why Dr. Maz and I call it the daily 16. Now you may not do a daily 16. Maybe you want to chunk it together and you know spend two hours on a Saturday morning helping a sick friend or family member, or volunteering for a good cause, or whatever. Um, but on average, if sustained over time, just 16 minutes per day uh, is there's a threshold effect there, and 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 so you don't have to think it's it's some monumental life upheaval. It's just simple little changes every day and incorporating them into your, your daily activity as a habit. And eventually over time, it becomes part of who you are. Right. And it, of course it has to be sustained over time. It's not like a one and done effect. We don't have any magical thinking about kindness or serving others you know, if you thought it was a one and done, like, oh, I helped somebody today, I'm all set into my, you know, for long life, that'd be like thinking, well, if I eat my vegetables once, you know, I'll, I'll live into, you know, good health into my 80s. And of course, that's not, uh, that'd be silly, right? So we have to incorporate these micro acts of compassion and kindness into our daily activities and just make it a part of who we are and habituate it So it is just part of our daily routine.
0: I think habituated is a very good way to put it because the way we think is a habit and habits take time to shift. And so if you do that on a small, consistent basis, maybe you get those little dopamine hits and an increase in serotonin and it becomes a a positive reinforcement on the way back. I want to get to a difficult question that you did tackle in the book, and I still, I got to be honest with you, I had a hard time wrestling with it yeah. is there really true altruism because they're okay. So we, okay. I, I, I read the book and it's like, I want that for myself. I want that right. good stuff for myself. So I'm going to go out and do a bunch of kind acts. So I get this for myself. Right. So what,
1: what the research supports is motives matter. What I mean by that is this, if you do something called, What In research, it's called strategic helping. So it's in contrast to what Dr. Maz and I called the live to give approach to life, Mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, That's like when you described your friend, uh, there was something he had that you didn't have and you wanted it and you didn't know what it was, but right. That's a live to giver, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you meet those people, that's generally what they're doing and they've figured out. Um, whether it was at a young age or maybe later in life that helping and serving others is just uh, something that uh, contributes so much to their own happiness and well-being they're just going to keep doing it and they're like this these people that like radiate with like this inner glow yes and you don't totally understand it but you know you want some of it yeah right and so That's what Dr. Maz and I call uh, the live to give approach to life. And we call those people live to givers. In contrast, if you're a strategic helper, where rather than being a live to giver, you're a give to getter, where it's just all about, hey, I want to give because maybe then, you know, I'll look good in front of the boss or like, you know, that's strategic helping. Mm. What the research shows, and this isn't my opinion, it's not like my belief, there's just science behind it is that not only is it not beneficial for you in the same ways that being a live-to-giver is, that actually the neuroscience data shows that it actually you actually experience it differently in your brain. So when you have functional MRI brain scans done, it's activating totally different neural structures. And that, that ex- helps to explain from a mechanistic standpoint why it is that strategic helping and uh, genuine altruism, if you will, are... Uh, associated with different effects and different outcomes. And so motives do matter. Um, strategic helping uh, you know, may help the person that you're helping, but it really won't help you. Um, importantly, the research does show that if you just know that it's good for you, um, that it doesn't ruin the effect. So if you read the first 10 chapters or two parts of wonder drug, it, it, it's not going to ruin the effect. So you can definitely get all the benefits, but if it's for some strategic ulterior motive, you might as well forget it.
0: Right. Right. Uh, I'm going to start winding up. I know that you have a busy day and I've really appreciated your time. i really enjoyed this. I do want to say this though. You shared this towards the end of the book. It's a, It's a saying that changed my life at about 33 years old when I first heard it. No one will ever remember what you said or what you did, but they'll remember, always remember how you made them feel.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And for an introvert like myself, who is always stuck in his own head, which is exactly where you don't want to be. It made me realize, I mean, when I first heard that, it sounds a little tricky at first. No, as soon as I heard that, I was like, that is the biggest truth I ever heard in my life. And it Mm -hmm. got me. So when I started talking to people, I was listening for the first time, really listening, not thinking about what I was going to say next to impress them. I was really listening to what they said. And it really got me out of my own head and has made me much better interpersonally in my relationships. So I wanted to bring that up. And I have many times on the podcast, but I, to me, it's the most important quote i ever heard. And uh, obviously, you think it's pretty big, too. You shared that, kind of wrapped up uh, your book with that.
1: And that quote is um, attributed to Maya Angelou, who was legendary in so many ways, and I agree with you. It's powerful, and it's powerful in that it's speaking truth. Mm -hmm. That is actually the last step of our seven-step prescription, which is know your power. And so the reason why we need to know our power is if we know that when we meet people in their time of need, even with something that we think is small, that we like the next day, we may never even remember that we did it. But when you meet people in the right moment, that maybe are at the end of their rope and you don't even know it, but they are, they literally may never forget what you did. Yeah. And every time that they think about it and it revisits them, it like reverberates in an echo chamber never to be forgotten and when it comes when it comes back to them over and over again they are actually helped all over again in the moment just by remembering it uh and there there are many you know data i won't go through all the data you had a person i will just real quick to close yeah i'll share a story real quick uh as we close up um so i was I'm an intensivist. So I was seeing patients in the ICU and I was seeing a a man in his uh, middle 50s who was dying of septic shock. Uh, Septic shock is overwhelming infection where all the the organ system shut down. It is one of the most common uh, causes of death in the United States. Among common things in the ICU, it is literally the most lethal thing that we take care of and we take care of it every day. And we were treating this Gentleman, with absolutely we're we're a referral center for Southern New Jersey here at Cooper and Camden and we were treating him with every modality that was possible kitchen sink he was getting everything and despite all that it appeared that he wasn't going to make it through the night and I had to tell that to his sister who was just a couple years younger than him and it was a really really hard talk in the and. um especially because she said that he had been her rock throughout her whole life. And as we were finishing the discussion and I was about to leave, I thought we were done almost. She, she asked me this question I hadn't heard before in the ICU. I don't think I, anyone had ever, had ever asked me in 20 years of working in the ICU. She said, you don't remember me, do you? And I, and I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't. She said, it's okay, I, w- I wouldn't expect you to. You see so many patients here you guys are so busy. I wouldn't expect you to remember me, but I do need you to know something. She said seven years ago, and she took her finger and she pointed it right across the hall to the ICU bed, right across the hall from where her brother laid. And she said, seven years ago, my mom was in that bed right over there and she was dying and there was nothing that could be done to save her. And you were her doctor and you had to tell me that. And so you and I have had this talk before. And it literally took my breath away. I couldn't breathe. But then she said something that I will never forget as long as I live. She said, I need you to know those nurses, those nurses, they were like angels to me. She used the word kindness. She kept saying the kindness of the nurses, they they, they held me in those days when she was dying and, and they let me know I wasn't going to go through it alone. And, and I didn't um, because they were there for me. They were like angels. And then she said, this is the part that I'll never forget as long as I live. She said, I think back to my mom's death all the time because we were so close. It hurts. Even now, seven years later, it hurts. I, I think about it like almost every day. But when I think about my mom dying and it hurts, I also remember those nurses and the kindness yeah. of those nurses, my angels. And it, it makes me feel better even now. Jeez, man. Jeez. That's a, that's a heck of a note. Uh, Seven years s- later. Yeah. So ICU nurses are like Olympic champions in compassion. So they probably went home at the end of the shift that day. Like, this is just what we do. And yeah. they may be like, if you asked them a week later, they'd be like, maybe not even remember. Right. Cause they right. do it every day. Right. Yeah. But for her seven years later, it not, it's not only it's something she remembered, it was something that helped her. Right. So I now teach this to my medical students, my residents, my, my fellows in training for critical care, like, when you go in and and you have these talks that are filled with that much emotion, right? Like, what do you want to be remembered for? Because you now you have to, and that's why the last step in the prescription is know your power, because you may not remember it a day, a week, a month from now, but they may never literally never forget it. And it could be helpful to them over and over and over again. And so Once you know that, once you know that about your opportunities to show kindness to people, whether you know if they're at the end of their rope uh, and, you know, have a poker face glued on tight and they're about to crumble, but you don't know it, or it's obvious that they're really struggling, like they may never forget what you did. And when you are aware of that and the science behind it, you feel differently about your opportunities to help and to serve others.
0: And that's really well said. And that's very true. When you really understand the effect you're having. Yeah. You're changing lives.
1: I mean, you're making a big impact on life for sure. But you don't have to be, let me just be clear. You don't have to be a healthcare worker to have that opportunity. Right. Right. Look at your neighbor who's maybe just lost a spouse. Right. Or your, you know, your friend who maybe lost a job or, Maybe, you know, I I don't like the saying random acts of kindness. I'm not sure how random they really are, but that's a totally different discussion for a different day. But, um, you know, uh, we all have this opportunity. I just share a story from the front lines in the ICU, but, but we, these opportunities lay all, all around us. And if you know your power, you feel differently about those opportunities to give and to serve.
0: Very true. Dr. Stephen Treziak. And the the book is Wonder Drug, Seven Scientifically Proven Ways that Serving Others is the Best Medicine for Yourself. You can get it on Amazon, um, probably many other places, but I will share the link in the show, show notes. And I highly recommend it. It's really, really terrific. And it is a game changer. Thank so you so much. Back. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. All right, bye-bye.